beforehand we were talking about this idea of starting with why. Like why why are you training? Why are you eating this way? Why? What do you want to accomplish? Because so often we start with the strategy first, right? Like I'm going to do this training routine, I'm going to do this diet. And it would be a bit like if you're a musician picking a certain, you know, I want to I'm going to write this song in G. Well, Maybe that's not the best chord to be writing the song in, right? Why don't you, what type of song is it you want to write and then work from there? Or, you know, if you're a golfer, you wouldn't hit the same club around the entire course. But if we get stuck into a certain strategy, then that's kind of what we're doing. And we end up painting ourselves into a bit of a corner. I founded the BWA Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. In today's episode, we look at the importance of sports nutrition and how diet can really impact the way that we are fueling our bodies correctly and how this can impact our performance, our recovery and our overall health physically and mentally. Do you struggle to know if you're refueling correctly and are you optimising your recovery? All of these are really important questions and can be so hard to navigate. If you simply type any of these questions into Google, You can be overwhelmed with the amount of information that can come up. So in today's episode, I brought on the professional and sports nutritionist, Dr. Mark Bubbs, to answer all of these questions. Mark has helped hundreds of professional and elite athletes get bigger, faster and stronger. And he works directly with the Canadian basketball team, as well as many Olympians that were at Tokyo this year. He really understands what you need to do to improve athlete health, to optimise recovery and to look at the mindset. So I can't be more excited than to share this week's episode with you. Now before we jump straight into this episode with Dr Mark Bubbs, I want to take one moment to thank my fantastic sponsors OMG Water for supporting this week's episode regarding sports nutrition because without our sponsors these episodes would not be possible. Now, OMG waters are a range of magnesium waters that include still and sparkling with delicious flavours such as peach and rosemary with ashwagandha, lemon balm and lithionine to help relax you and blackcurrant and echinacea with vitamin C to help support your immunity. They are 100% natural and they use the highest quality extracts and flavours with no added calories, no added sugars or sweeteners. They just use delicious botanicals to help elevate these flavours. Now, magnesium is a really important mineral and I speak about it a lot and it's why I work with this fantastic company. As many of you have known who followed me on Instagram, I speak a lot about magnesium because a large majority of us in the UK are deficient in this mineral. However, when it comes to endurance athletes and physical exercise, Magnesium deficiency is much more common than you think, especially in runners, endurance athletes and people who are exercising regularly 
they are at a greater risk of magnesium deficiency due to its role in energy production and metabolism because it's lost through sweat during exercise as well as urine. So as much as I always advocate food as first by eating your leafy greens, your nuts, your avocados, sometimes we do also need to look at other portable ways if we're not always having a healthy balanced diet. OMG water is fantastic for that and you can just add in one of their drinks a day. They have as much magnesium in them as an avocado and they taste delicious. So to purchase one of these delicious sparkling water magnesium cans, all you have to do is head to the OMG website, which is www.ohmgwater.com. And you can get, just for my listeners, 30% off this brand. All you have to do is pop in the code BWC30 to get 30% off the delicious and my favourite sparkling magnesium water by OMG. Mark, welcome to Live Well, Be Well this week. Firstly, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? Well, listen, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, well, you've had a phenomenal career in sports nutrition. And so could you give everyone a bit of a rundown of firstly, who you're working with currently at the moment and how you actually got into this field of sports nutrition? Like, what was it that pulled you in? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a long story. So hopefully I can give you a bit of the whirlwind, <laughs> whirlwind tour. Um, yeah, I mean, just I work as the director of nutrition for Canada Basketball, so our men's Olympic team and also consult. So consulted with you know, group of track and field athletes from, from various countries in the lead up to the last Olympics. And yeah, it's been really cool to be able to work with, you know, a lot of the world's best, but uh, interestingly, it's actually not too dissimilar to, to working with clients in the general population, right? The the challenges that they might have aren't always that dissimilar. And so, you know, for me, 20 plus years ago, doing my pre-med studies, I was really interested in nutrition, interested in exercise, but back then there was not even like a sport dietitian or performance nutritionist, or you could barely find a doctor who was interested in nutrition. And so I pivoted away from the traditional medicine. And in Canada, we have something called naturopathic medicine, which was a, you know, a four-year degree, a medical degree. And so I went down that road and then within that still nutrition was how I wanted to influence and, and support clients. And sort of in the mid 2000s, a lot of athletes struggling with whether it's immune issues or digestive issues or not thriving. And so you know, got pulled into a lot of those, those discussions as I, you know, I worked in personal training and strength and conditioning through my, through all my studies in undergrad and, and postgrad. So, so yeah, that's led me to, to today. And it's been really cool over the last 20 plus years to see how nutrition's kind of gone from this niche thing to now everyone's, you know, thinking about nutrition, talking about nutrition, which <laughs> does have its pitfalls as well, but it is, uh, it is great to see that it's on the, you know, front of mind, whether it's medicine, you know, wellness, sports, etc. No, definitely. And I mean, you started, I started looking at nutrition 10 years ago. And even back then, it was a really kind of like obsolete subject. Everyone thought, mm-hmm. I don't think my dad even knew what a nutritionist was. Like, yeah. I remember seeing some of the older generations, they were like, what is that? And you started 10 years previous. So I can imagine, you know, it was a, it's kind of a real hard struggle to actually 
find the right course and and kind of get people to, to listen to you to the importance of it. But you mentioned some really interesting points there when you were working with athletes and they were struggling with like digestive issues and immune issues. Like, can you just talk about how important it is to make sure that when you are training, even if it's not to that kind of high standard, um, how important nutrition is when you're training? Because it is linked to so many different things that maybe people don't always seem to relate that to. 100%. Yeah. I mean, like back again, back in the day, it was really through personal training and strength and conditioning. You get a lot of trainers who are working with clients or athletes who were saying my client's struggling with, uh, you know, not adapting well to this, to this training block, struggling, you know, colds, flus, niggles, um, you know, is challenged with, with bloating and discomfort and can't tolerate, you know, this food or that shake. And so, you know, that was the entry point back then. And of course, those clients who are struggling with something, that's naturally you're going to be more compliant, aren't you, when you actually have a concern. Mm. And so mm. that was a great way to get in. And like anything, once those athletes or clients improved and felt better, then all of a sudden, whether it was the trainer or the athlete's colleague or friend saying, hey, you know, you're doing pretty well. It's, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. And so, yeah, when we look at things like immunity, I mean, we see in the biggest medical journals now that, you know, elite performance is incompatible with frequent illness right? Like if you're constantly tired and run down, it's going to impact your ability to just show up and train every day, which weirdly enough is actually the best predictor of success, right? It's not finding the fancy training regime or the exotic supplement or, you know, it's just being able to do it every day, which again is simple, but not easy, right? It's, it's, it's challenging to do that. And it gets interesting when you look at the fact that even symptoms of cold and flu, so you're not actually sick, right? When they test, when they perform these tests, you don't actually have a, an active infection, but you have, you know, the symptoms of so the scratchy throat, the, mm. you know, the, the, the gray circle starting under the eyes and these types of things. And, and even that's going to be correlated to poor adaptation and, and inability to really perform. And so it's interesting because this concept of sort of athlete health being a driver of performance, you know, if we can create a healthy person, a healthy athlete, then they can then best express their training potential and adapt the best. And that was something that was very sort of niche, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now is, is you know, pretty much every professional organization and, and, and around sport, this is something that really resonates with people. So it's, I think that's something that, that hits home. And of course, on the elite side, it really is from training so intensely for the rest of mm -hmm. us, even if we are, you know, for a recreational athlete and we have a full-time job, it's even though we feel like we're training intensely and we certainly are, it's more to do with the under recovery piece, right? It's more to do with the fact that you're working eight, nine, 10 plus hours a day. You might have family, young kids at home, you, you know, you might not sleep as much. And so all of these things start to compromise our ability to recover, which also impacts immunity, right? We have some mm. classic studies done in the nineties by uh, professor Sheldon Cohen around. They actually inoculated these subjects with the, with the cold virus. And then, you know, wanted to see how lack of sleep impacted, you know, your immune system. And, and what they found was pretty novel back then is, you know, if you got less than seven hours of sleep a night, you were three times more likely to get sick. And if you got less than six hours of sleep a night, you were four and a half times more likely. And so that really hits home. And again, you know, I know you got a wide audience here, but anyone who's not sleeping enough because of work, you know, you, you have that really busy period, all of a sudden you stop and you do get sick. Well, that's, you know, one of the reasons because now your immune system's not able to really defend you the way it would normally would do. It's really interesting, isn't it? Sleep plays such a critical part. And 
even though this is, you know, we, we speak a lot about nutrition, sleep is one of the things that I bring up in clinic to a lot of people. And it's this really hard balance, I feel. Obviously, we're not talking about like the elite athletes where their whole career is devised around their training. It's kind of the day-to-day person who, mm-hmm. as you said, has a busy job. And, you know, everyone's lifestyle is quite chaotic, but we're always told to move more and kind of, you know, look at what we're eating a bit more and understanding portion sizes and fruit and veg and fiber. So there's this kind of pressure where people go, well, I need to get up at 6 a.m. to get my workout in. Mm-hmm. And actually, like, how counterproductive can that be? Because actually, are you will you be seeing the effects if if the other areas aren't supported? You know, it's a great question. And beforehand, we were talking about this idea of starting with why. Mm. Why, why are you training? Why are you eating this way? Why? What do you want to accomplish? Because so often we start with the strategy first, right? Like I'm going to do this training routine. I'm going to do this diet. And it would be a bit like if you're a musician picking a certain, you know, I want to, I'm going to write this song in G. Well, maybe that's not the best chord to be writing the song in, right? Why don't you, what type of song is it you want to write and then work from there? Or, you know, if you're a golfer, you wouldn't hit the same club around the entire course. But if we get stuck into a certain strategy, then that's kind of what we're doing. And we, we end up painting ourselves into a bit of a corner. So, you know, with getting up early, hey, it can be great. You know, if you're not getting up too much before the sun, you know, it helps us set circadian rhythms. You, you knock your training out. There's a lot of variety you can use with how you fuel, whether you're, you know, training fasted, unfasted. But to your point, hey, if you're going to bed at midnight and you're waking up at 5.30 and you feel tired and you struggle with energy and you have, you know, muscle soreness that lasts longer than it should and you feel like you have a scratchy throat all the time, is it really helping you? You know, is it really? And so, yeah, that's, it's definitely one that comes down to the individual and we want to try to get that minimum of seven hours of sleep per night, which is the national sleep foundation's recommendation. Um, but you do get benefits as you go up towards, you know, eight hours a night, which is what we recommend for athletes. And so, you know, like you said, people are busy. We are resilient as humans. And so we can get away with a little bit less sleep here or there, but it is about, you know, working with someone, building out a plan, being clear on your goals and then having a system so you can track whether or not you're actually getting fitter and and working towards those goals. And I think, you know, you mentioned something there about low energy and that's a lot of what people come to see me about is that they're always quite tired and fatigued. And when Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I put a question I was saying to you earlier that we were doing this podcast today about sports and nutrition and exercise, and I definitely want to hit recovery quite heavy in a Mm -hmm. minute, but you know, how do people know if they're taking on enough energy and they're refueling correctly because people can be getting up and doing these workouts, but there's kind of a very, there's, there's a lot of noise around kind of refueling and how much you're meant to be having. And people are on so many different types of different diets at the moment. It's mm-hmm. quite hard to know, like, are you refueling correctly? And is this a big reason why people have such low energies? Yeah. I mean, first off, if we think of energy, I mean, energy is ATP, which is the currency in the cells. And, you know, the fitter we are aerobically, the more mitochondria we have and the more ATP we can produce. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times with clients, especially in clinical practice, working with clients who might have more of that chronic fatigue or even fibromyalgia type picture or just run down, you know, how fit are they and how can we get them back? How can we build a base of fitness? And the challenge sometimes with that is that people, you know, it's natural. You want to go to a class and you do a class with friends, but that class tends to be more in this glycolytic, this moderate to higher training area. And so we're not actually building out the kind of slow, steady 
part of the training. And I think that's where we see some nice benefits now with whether it's run clubs or a lot of the online offerings now actually have a good way of building that up. But that would be one way to, to first think about, okay, how do we, can we just improve our general fitness level? And that will actually help with, with energy. Mm-hmm. When it comes to fueling, I mean, this is where it gets crazy with carbohydrates, right? Like if you're working with a Tour de France rider, they will be consuming 18 grams per kilogram body weight of carbohydrates. So, you know, you think a low carb diet is a hundred grams of carbs in a day. These athletes would be consuming 1500 plus in a day. Right. And they're Mm -hmm. lean and metabolically healthy and all those other things. And so, you know, this idea of fueling for the demands, right. Required. What are you doing? You know, do you sit at a desk all day? Cause that's what most of us do in front of our laptops or are you, do you have a manual labor job? How much training do you do? Those are things we want to take into account because then, you know, if we're struggling with holding on to too much weight, then, you know, we are, we are taking on board more energy than we're, than we're using. And the weird thing is when you think about even a really lean individual, like someone who's 10% body fat, you know, you can see abs and they don't look like they have much body fat on them. They still have 30,000 calories of energy on them, right? So someone who's 20% body fat, which is still lean, right? Um, or 30% body fat has, you know, 60, 80, 90,000 calories of energy on them. And so it becomes this paradox of if I'm full of energy, why can't I get from breakfast to lunch without feeling tired? Like I have no energy. And so it's this being able to access and better break down those fuel reserves is sort of part of the story. And, you know, we can get into how maybe the breakfast can impact that. Obviously the healthier you Mm. are, typically the better you'll be at that, but that's that's where we get to with a lot of the general population, you know, two thirds are now overweight or obese. And so, you know, you know, we're hungry yet we still got loads of fuel on us. And so this is sort of the paradox and how we can help clients get out of that. And so how do you help clients get out of that? Cause you mentioned such a good statistic there, whereas obviously like such a large majority of us, not with just in the UK, but globally are overweight. And, you know, to also add to that two thirds of our shopping baskets in the UK are full of highly processed foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, you know, our, diets aren't nutrient dense and and i see it not in a, in a sports way but you know we're not fueling our bodies correctly we're not nourishing them in the ways that that we should be so that's a really good question you know how important is, is breakfast and how important is food timing with exercise yeah those are two great questions and i might just start with what you mentioned there with the ultra processed food and so you know environment trumps everything really you know you think of an athlete they go to these special training centers or or colleges or universities or teams, because those are where all the elite people are. And that environment then propels them to become more advanced in their craft. Right. And so our food environment, you know, sort of works against us in that way, or unless you maybe live in Sardinia or, or Okinawa or somewhere like that. But, you know, in Canada, the UK and the US, oh so yeah, over 50% of everything we buy, it comes in a box or a bag. And what really blows me away is that being Canadian, you know, you have to drive six hours to get to the next closest town. And over here, you can take a train from London and go to Paris two hours away. You step out of the train station and all of a sudden, rather than 50% of everything you buy is boxed and bagged and ultra processed. In France, it's 14%, mm. right? Italy is 13%, Portugal's 10%, Spain's around 18 to 20. And so, yeah, part of this whole magic is just to your point, getting back to eating you know, more real food, which has more nutrients, but also just has less energy in it, um, which is a big part of that. And so, you know, your question around breakfast, 
this gets really interesting. I mean, their University of Bath does some great research. Uh, Dr. Javier Gonzalez, James Betts, and, and their group. And they actually compared lean versus obese individuals with eating versus skipping breakfast. And it's interesting because for the obese individuals who actually skip breakfast, they actually had a more pronounced glucose response. And then something called the second meal effect, which basically means at lunchtime, they would also have a pronounced glucose response and an increased inflammation. And so, you know, is it okay to skip breakfast? Sure. If it's a strategy and there's a, there's a definition around what we're doing, but when we look at more of that research, we also see that in that overweight group, if we fast for too long, we can start to see reductions in, in movement. So you start to move a little bit less in the day, even spontaneous movement like blinking and fidgeting, which seems like it's inconsequential is actually sufficient enough to, to, you know, elicit changes in body composition. And then what I see a lot in my practice is, you know, somebody fasts till noon, two, three, four, but now we're eating until 11 PM and the late eating is, you know, the, the adverse effects of late eating far offset any benefits you might get from the fasting. And, and I think this is one of the problems we're in now is that, you know, over 40% of the population are eating, excuse me, 40% 40% of all the calories we eat are after 6 p.m. So to your point around breakfast, I mean, we can have, you know, what's what's the goal? Is the goal weight loss? Well, you know, I typically like to start with my clients around protein as the first thing we think about, and then we move out from there. And it's interesting because 100 years ago, we all worked manual labor jobs. And so if you look at any traditional cuisines, it's always the starch first, right? Because we've got to go out into the field or we've got to lift things and we need all this fuel. Um but again, we're not, we're not moving as much anymore. And so I think protein is a great place to start, especially with breakfast. Uh, it's the meal of the day that we don't hit that, that minimum of 20 grams, which is where a lot of the good stuff starts happening in terms of the effects and, and muscle protein synthesis and these types of things. And so, you know, whatever strategy people want, if you want to have eggs or, or plain yogurt, or if you're plant-based and you want to do tofu or soy yogurt, I mean, the strategy can be changed to suit the individual, but I think that principle is a great place to start. Get that protein, then we can work on the veggies, the fruits, and how much starch you know you need to hit your goals. Protein is, is the building blocks to kind of our muscles and and so many parts of of making us who we are. And protein is left out quite a lot sometimes, especially in certain diets where it looks more protein combining, so such as vegan diets and vegetarian diets, which is really important. But when we go on to move on from protein. How much should we be refueling with protein when people are working out? Is it important to make sure you're having protein first of all and then looking at the other components? And are you meant to be having carbohydrates with it? Because obviously we need to refuel those glucose that were lost. And, you know, that's, I think, where people get quite confused. A lot of people go and get a protein shake, but actually how beneficial is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, another really good question. And this is where, you know, we're always trying to automate things for clients. You know, I don't want my client to think about something for a little while, but then I want it to just become second nature. I don't want them walking around with a giant list that they have to follow for months and months or having to track their calories forever or wondering what they should eat on the weekend. Like we want to be able to build in every week, these habits that then just become second nature. Right. Mm. And so with that, you know, a good minimum to aim for, for protein would be 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And so that's your worst day, Right. And when we look at things like longevity and healthy aging, that's a really nice number to aim for because it helps to not just support muscle mass and, and, and bone density, but overall health, right? So if you can hit that number, so let's say for make the maths easy here, someone was 100 kilograms, so 120 grams of protein, and we try to divide that evenly over the course of the day. 
If you can do that, then the timing issue becomes much, much less important, especially for our recreational clients who, again, is, if they're not uh, mining those 2.5% gains that an Olympic athlete might be going after. And so that's a nice minimum to, to shoot for. When we talk about, you know, a lot of clients say, well, I want to go a bit more than minimum. I want to, I want to get some, you know, more gains. And so if you think of a bell curve, as we work our way up the left side of that bell curve towards the top, that's when we get to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. And again, hitting that number, it's going to give you a little bit more benefits for, again, not just the muscles, but you know, all systems of the body and for body composition and weight loss. And you don't have to go all the way up to oftentimes people will hear this idea about a gram per pound body weight um, of protein, which is quite a lot in, in kilograms, that would be 2.2. Um, so those are two nice numbers to shoot for. And again, I always start with clients general 1.2. Let's hit that number. Let's divide it through the day. And when it comes to things like shakes, I mean, you know, always we like people to eat food as best they can. So not just, you said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not just for the added nutrients, but, you know, what goes under noticed is the diet-induced thermogenesis. So this idea that when you eat, you burn calories. And if we circle back to those riders in the Tour de France, just from digestion, they burn three to 4,000 calories a day, which is insane. Right? There's mad. more calories than most of us eat in a day. Yeah. Than all, you know. um, and so we want to start with food, but people are busy. Right. And so this is where, you know, we might need portable nutrition. And so sometimes we want to think of, of shakes more as just portable nutrition, right? We can't bake a piece of salmon. We can't, you know, et cetera, get on the barbecue. So let's, let's have a shake. And so this is where, you know, whether it's whey isolate, which does have a lot of other health properties, right? It's, it's loaded with glutathione, which is a you know, tremendous antioxidant in the body it has immunoglobulins, which is good for your immune system, helps to lower blood pressure. And, you know, for lack of a better term, what we call like clean, you know, compared to a bar, which is going to be much more, we're going to have to add some sugars and some other things or some energy to make it taste of anything or else no one's going to mm. eat it. You know, the, the powders are actually much more um, simple in that way, right? You look at the ingredients, there's one thing or two things. And again, if somebody's plant-based, then, you know, experiment a little bit. The challenge with plant-based can be that, you know, digestively, it's very different, right? What works for one person and then you give it to the next person and then for them that causes bloating and discomfort and you've got to, you know, have a few different favorites you can offer people. That's really interesting. And so leading on to protein um, and going on to fats, and you've mentioned here about um, maybe skipping breakfast and not skipping breakfast and the pros and cons to that. Because intermittent fasting is one of the things that I see heavily on the rise and it has been for a couple of years, but also the ketogenic diet. And mm -hmm. there's now a lot of athletes or non-athletes, I have to say some people that I know as well, um, that are completely heavily aligned with the keto diet. And I always say that, you know, I believe in a balanced approach in a diet. Mm -hmm. um, it's right for the individual and every single individual is different. So what works for one person does not necessarily work for the other. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge rise of kind of articles around the ketogenic diet, which is obviously a very high fat, limited carbohydrate diet. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that with training and maybe not training to an elite, an elite side of things, but for the general population, some people who are taking on this approach, you know, is there any detriments to this? Yeah. I mean, I think when we look at any type of dietary strategy, one of the things I'm always thinking about is how motivated is this person to follow it, right? We've all seen that client come in who's just love the fact that they found this diet, whether it's vegan, keto, 
paleo, anything in between, and they really want to do it. And so as a practitioner, compliance is always the hardest thing. And when we have compliance, you know, we want to run with it as much as we can. And we also want to build this trust with the client, right? Build some rapport, which is, you know, it takes time. And so unfortunately, what I see a lot of practitioners do is someone will come in, they will, I want to be on the keto diet, I want to run a marathon. And they'll say, well, that's just silly, because no one's ever won an Olympic medal with a ketogenic diet, even in race walking. Um, you know, you're going to compromise your performance at the highest speeds, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all those things are true, but we don't need to go there right off the bat, right? Again, who's this individual? Have they got 30 pounds to lose and they want to run a marathon? Terrific. We can use a lot of the principles of a ketogenic diet because it's in effect sort of under fueling, right? The carbohydrates are quite low. We can still keep the protein where it's at um, and we can get a lot of benefit there. Now, the reality is as the fitter somebody gets, if we add carbohydrate before or during training, we're going to get a better effect in that training, right? Um, so even, you know, the world's fastest ultra marathoner, Zach Bitter, who, you know, I've had on my podcast, um, he is a big proponent of low carb fueling and sort of keto style fueling for most of his training. But when it's race day or when it's intense sessions, he is adding more fuel and that goes unnoticed in a lot of the blogosphere and online, et cetera. So keto diets can be tremendous, you know, so if people want to get started with it, it's a, you know, most of these diets, when they begin, people tend to eat more protein, they tend to eat more vegetables, they tend to eat less processed stuff. And so mm. whatever one you pick, if that's the themes, fantastic. What you'll tend to find is once somebody loses that sort of, if they've got a significant amount of weight to lose, maybe 20 pounds plus, once they lose that sort of first half or a bit, then they'll end up getting a little bit stuck. And that's effectively because there's just too much energy still in the system. And and so there's a, you know, there's too much fat basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and this is where it gets funny because even a tablespoon of oil is, is, you know, 130 calories and you could have half a cup of rice and that'd be almost half the amount of calories, but it looks like a lot more on your plate. And so, you know, there's nuances there. Um, and I think, so it can be a great strategy. I think the best part is we want to use those templates to get people started and then you know, to your point, as a practitioner, we can then start to personalize and kind of nudge things and massage things to the outcome, always with that outcome goal in mind. Yeah, you mentioned something really important there, actually, that I always have the term a calorie isn't a calorie. So all calories are so different. And one question I did get on um, the messages yesterday was, should I be calorie counting when I'm training? And it's a really good question because, as you said, they are all so different. So one calorie is very different to another calorie. So a calorie from broccoli is very different to a calorie from a chocolate bar. They do very different things. And I think sometimes people can get so bogged down in calorie counting and training. Is that something that you see? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the biggest challenge with counting calories is that when we overconsume protein, so we've got studies where people overconsume 800 calories worth of protein and there's no increases in body fat. But if we were to do that with carbohydrates and fats, we would see that. And so, you know, if we're strictly calorie counting and not accounting for some of these things, then all of a sudden we can be under fueling too much. Um, and so like a lot of things, like even weighing yourself or counting calories, these can be good exercises, you know, to get a client to go through, to experience things. And, you know, when I monitor body weight and some clients, everyone in intuitively thinks it's because we just want to race to the finish line and, and lose that weight as fast as we can when that's not the case at all, right? You always want to lose weight going as slow as possible and eating as much as you can, right? Because the steeper you reduce caloric intake, 
the more muscle mass you're going to lose. And so, you know, this is a problem because muscle mass comes off pretty quick, but if you build a half a pound of muscle in a month, that's fantastic. So it takes a heck of a long time to put back on. And so if we're only using the scale to, to measure progress, then that can lie to us a little bit. Um, people do these fasts, you know, when we work with, with combat sports or boxers, you know, your somebody's bowel contents are three, four or five pounds. Right. And so if somebody fasts for the day and then they wake up the next morning, they're like, Oh, fantastic. I lost five pounds. Well, no, there's just nothing in your digestive tract. So that's why you've lost, you haven't lost any body fat. Um, and so, and these things can kind of sound funny, but there are sort of lessons that people can learn even with carbohydrate, right? It goes into the muscle, brings on board water. So after the weekend, the client thinks they've gained two or three pounds. They haven't, it's water. Let's relax. Let's go through the week. Let's watch it come back down by Friday. And so having an understanding of some of these things, especially for our general population is really nice because you know, we stop, you know, for lack of a better term, we stop freaking out over like these small changes because I think that's where people get into trouble is they see a little change and then they want to change their plan. You know, they want to do a shotgun approach. Now we're going to do a new diet. We're going to do a new exercise regime. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not actually, you know, it's not actually a problem. Let's just keep, keep doing what you're doing. Let's build the habits, you know, and we can get there in the long run. It's building the healthy habits and it's not extreme, isn't it? It's, you've made a really good point, And I think that linked to the ketogenic diet quite well is that when people cut out carbohydrates, they see this automatic, very quick weight loss on the scale. But again, it, it's water weight and that, and yeah. then they see that it goes straight back on when they start eating carbohydrates. And it's this kind of like not understanding how it works within the body of why you have such quick weight loss. Yeah. And it's funny because even as a practitioner, it's like not reacting so much when the client's so happy that they lost this weight in the first week. You're like, okay, well, that's, you know, it's your point kind of explaining some of these things or trying to temper some of that because it's, you know, it's a marathon and people are, we're actually good at losing weight. We're just really bad at keeping it off. Mm. And so ultimately that gets back to, you know, our food environment questions and building the habits and, you know, a lot of psychology, which is, you know, obviously your area of expertise. And so those are the things that we're trying to help people with, whether it's, you know, whether you're a professional athlete or the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely, and before we kind of go on to the recovery side, there's something else that I really want to, because we've touched upon sleep, um, but caffeine is something that a lot of people come to me about. And, um, you know, some people can't exercise without caffeine. Some people find it very kind of triggering and anxious writing to have caffeine. So what's your thought on performance and caffeine? Is it a good thing? Well, it's definitely a good thing for performance, but like most things in life, you can get too much of a good thing, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's also good for health. We see studies on, you know, with the polyphenol content in terms of longevity, reductions in all cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, cancers. You know, the trick is that in the studies, an eight ounce cup of coffee has 80 milligrams of caffeine. So we're looking at a daily total between 120 and 240, right? And the if you go to Starbucks, which, you know, or Costa coffee and you get the biggest one, that's 450 milligrams of caffeine. So this idea of dose again, becomes really key. And, and again, your typical, you know, you go to a coffee shop these days and you get that kind of double pour for the flavor and everything. And that might be around the 120 milligrams, um, for a cup. And so, yeah, some people, if they're consuming two, three, four cups or even black tea, right. We can get 40, 60, maybe more milligrams of caffeine, depending on how long we steep it. And if you start to exceed two or three milligrams per kilogram body weight per day, and you push up towards the upper end, which is five or six, you can start to experience anxiety, right? I mean, it's in the DSM-5, which is that mental Mm. diagnostic Bible in medicine. And that, you know, too much caffeine equals anxiety. And you see people who are 
medicated even for anxiety and that we still haven't reduced their caffeine intake in the day. And so I think this is where actually genetics can play a really good role. I mean, there's a, a lot of things. And when we look at genes are still, we still need to figure them out and they're very associative, but with the CYP1A2 gene, which regulates, you know, our, our caffeine processing, if you are a slow metabolizer, or as Dr. Nancy Guestin at U of University of Toronto found, you know, we even have ultra slow metabolizers, which mean, you know, caffeine really stays in your system. Then, you know, you're going to do better with less caffeine. Hmm. And, and hers was the first study to show that even athletes, if you were ultra slow metabolizer, you'd actually perform worse in an endurance bout. And so, you know, I'm a coffee lover, right? So I love coffee, but, you know, general rules, try to keep it before noon, you know, hmm. one cup, maybe two. Um, if you are someone who drinks five or six cups, you might want to think about swapping in some decafs there to have the taste experience mm-hmm. um, and the antioxidants. Yeah. And and actually, there was a, an, another really interesting study that showed if you're a regular coffee drinker, and this is where it gets ridiculous, we're, we're just like Pavlov's dog. They found that if you just go in and smell and see the coffee, your brain starts getting all similar responses to if you'd actually have drunk the coffee, right? So this is, this is where a lot of us are at. So save some money, just pop in, get a big whiff of the aromas and then, you know, off, off you go. That's what we need to do that. I mean, it is for me a bit of a routine, but I did cut coffee out for quite a while actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when, well, I still had caffeine because I had matcha, yep. but obviously it's a slower release. Um, but there is always this question around caffeine Caffeine in the morning. Like, should you have caffeine as your first dose in the morning before your workout? You know, is that going to affect your GI system, such as your digestive system? Um, or And is it going to give your adrenal glands too much of a shock, so too much cortisol releases? All these kind of questions that a lot of people ask me, which obviously I'd love to ask you. Yeah, I mean, it's – so one interesting study around if you don't get enough sleep at night and then you have a coffee first thing, which is sort of the natural reaction, right, if you haven't slept mm. a lot you're tired, you need to get up and get going, you're actually going to have, again, a much exaggerated glucose response, which isn't Mm. a good thing because then it plummets mid-morning and you start looking for those snacks and more caffeine. So if you're struggling with sleep, having it just after you eat your breakfast actually helps to offset that. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to exercise, we do get some nice benefits with coffee in the morning. And if, you know, if people are combining it with milk or soy milk, you're getting a nice protein hit as well. So you can do that. But to your point, it's like, if you you know, I had one client who basically had like an automated coffee maker that would start making the coffee before he even woke up because he needed to sort of reach over and just get himself started. You know, that's the point where I was like, all right, that's this is too much. This is too much, right? I mean, caffeine is a drug, right? Yeah. And so, we're, you know, we're, and so, yeah, we need to find the right dose. The morning's not so bad. It's more your afternoon or evening people who are training that say, oh, I really need, you know, I'm tired from working. It's five or six o'clock. I want my pre-workout that's got 200 milligrams of caffeine, or I'm going to have a quick, you know, double shot of espresso at seven o'clock at night. You know, that's not the best idea, right? That's going to no. cause you some problems and, um, you know, compromise the sleep because of that, you know, the time it takes caffeine to clear from the system. Hours. So, yeah. So it's going to be in there all night and it's going to compromise sleep. And, um, but yeah, first thing in the morning, like you said, it's good for people to experiment with not having coffee, even for a week. Yeah. Do they get headaches? Do they get bad withdrawals? You know, if they're noticing some of these things, then you probably need to find a little bit better <laughs> dose or rhythm for them, right? And like two things there is that one of my friends who he's a, he likes training in the evening. For me, I'm not very good at training in the evening because it keeps me up and also I'm tired for my day, but he would have a kind of a shake before he went to the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, because he'd have that kind of 
intermediate before his dinner. And he was really struggling with his sleep. And I said, can I see the shake? And it was laced with caffeine. Yeah. And so there's kind of hidden caffeine in these kind of pre-workout shakes that people are taking and also then don't realise that that's going to affect them if they're having that later in the evening. Even at the highest level, like studying rugby players, none of them knew how much caffeine was in the caffeine tub and they're all just <laughs> taking tablespoons of this powder and just mega dosing. And so this is where, yeah, it's a problem for everybody. We definitely need to be aware of it and just to, yeah, find that right dose and then stick to it. Completely. And like another thing I found, you said actually, it's, it's something that I did a while ago when I was really tired waking up, I'd have a coffee. And it is one, probably one of the worst decisions you can do. I think rehydrating with water if you are tired, is one of the biggest things as far as help with fatigue and how important is hydration with exercise because obviously you're losing a lot through sweat if you're training hard. And some people don't always think think a lot about protein or maybe are having that protein shake. But how important is hydration with exercise as well? Yeah, I mean, hydration is definitely important. Um, It's interesting because something called the beverage hydration index, I mean, even things like milk hydrate us more quickly than something like water. And so sometimes for people, if they are training in the morning or the evening or after training, you know, whether it's milk or soy milk or something else like that, then they can, you know, you don't just, you get the hydration effect, but you're also bringing on board protein and nutrients all in one shot. And so that can be a pretty nice way uh, to be supporting that. And, you know, with our diets, obviously the vegetables, the, the proteins, all these things have water in them. And so sometimes when you're looking at younger athletes, one of the hydration issues we have isn't just the fact that they're not drinking water all day, it's because their diet's made up of largely processed food, which is not going to have a lot of water. It's going to have more salt in it. And so, but, um, once all that's accounted for, yeah, we, we definitely want to hydrate and, you know, at the highest level of people listening are, are, you know, pretty active and athletic. It does come down to that idea of salt. So if you're losing a lot of salt with all the sweating, we got to put mm. more back in. And that's sometimes I see that in people who do have really, again, quote unquote, clean diets, they eat a lot of fresh foods and whole foods, but they don't actually add salt to any of their food. Mm-hmm. Now, now we're going to actually be pretty helpful to start being more aggressive with the salting, whether it's sea salt or whatnot. And they might even want to consider, you know, that electrolyte drink or whatever they're taking around training, they might do better by having a higher salt version of that. Mm. And so coming on to recovery a bit more, if you're training five days a week, how much time would you meant to be having off and how much should you be mixing up those workouts to making sure that you are recovering sufficiently? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to recovery, you know, all the best sleep experts will tell you recovery experts like Dr. Shona Halson at the Australian Institute of Sport sleeps where we need to start, right? We need to get Mm. at least that seven hours. And so if we're thinking about various supplements or, you know, hot baths, cold baths, um, compression garments, all these kind of things, but you're only getting six hours of sleep, then we need to, you know, the base of that pyramid is going to be sleep. We also see nutrition as key there and that base of that pyramid in terms of the most important aspects. And then interestingly, the last piece is the mental emotional side, which is something that even in, again, it's taken a while, but even in elite sport is something that's really considered now because yeah, if you are stressed from work or there's, you know, your, your social life, your partner, your family, that has a significant impact on, on your nervous system. And so Mm. that plays a big role in recovery. And so those are the real foundational pieces like are you are you feeling adequately are you getting sufficient sleep are you able to sort of manage you know the emotional mental toll of of what's going on in your life and then after that it really becomes again back to that individual so if someone's just trying to lose 
20 pounds or they're getting back into a workout routine, one of the things we tend to shift towards too quickly. And, you know, if you're if someone's listening to this and they're a bit type A, we always want to go to like the most intense workout routine, right? Well, if, you, if you're deconditioned and you haven't trained a lot, you're going to get benefits doing not very much. So you don't need to race up the ladder to get to the most intense stimulus because you're sort of leaving out free gains, you know, the low hanging fruit, you're just bypassing all of it. And mm. so, you know, starting slow, getting, you know, training two or three times a week, if you haven't lifted in a while, or, you know, again, on the aerobic side of things, but trying to do that minimum effective dose so that we can actually keep doing this for six months or a year. I'm mm. sure you see all the time people come back. September is a big time, right? My three kids are back to school, which is yeah. fantastic. Um, or <laughs> January time. <laughs> And it's like the first month we go for it, like, you know, our hair's on fire. And then after that, the gyms, and you saw this all the time when I used to work as a, as a strength coach, personal trainer, you know, the gym in January would be loaded. And then by February, you know, you could fire a cannon through there because everyone's decided not to continue. Right. Yeah. So let's go slow. Let's, let's go slow and steady and then progress towards that. And again, most people aren't going to overtrain from doing too much in the session. Mm. it'll be, you know, effectively the lack of recovery. That's one of the big things, or they're just, you know, doing too much of the same kind of workout. Like if you're always running the same 5k every single morning, then you're not progressively overloading and that will come back to bite you because it's, uh, you know, you're not getting fitter and, and it's just taxing your body. Mm. Yeah. That's something that I'm definitely, um, I have to put my hand up and I always do the same 5k. <laughs> It's fun for a while. Don't get me wrong. It's good to kind of be able to go yeah. out and do that. But yeah, that's always when we just pause for a minute and then just write out your plan for the next month or two and build towards a certain distance, do some slower, faster runs, you know, that kind of thing that we can help yeah. our clients. And again, as practitioners, we all fall into that as well, right? It's like you're busy clients and then you Maybe. just want to get out and, and do some exercise. But, uh, you know, we all need to pause and, and, and plant, map out our month or two or three, right? No, I completely agree. I mean, for me and for many people, I think who are runners stretch is one of the most important workouts you can do not many people I don't do it very often at all um and for me that's definitely part of a recovery routine that I need to add in is stretching the muscles and kind of allowing them to recover that way um but you know how important is that kind of side to to exercise a lot of people go and pound themselves at the gym or go to a spin class or resistance training or, or running but there's not that much focus around stretching yeah, I mean, stretching is interesting. Stretching is, you know, beneficial. I think one of the things we could we could tack on here would be just mobility, right? So we mm. all end up in these positions because we're at a desk all day. We become mm. sort of locked up in our thoracic spine, our our shoulders, our hips, um, low back tension, and so we need to just start to move a little bit better so that when we do go into the gym or we go for a run, you know, we're asking our body to get into certain positions, mm. and if we can't get into them, then we're going to have a problem at some point. And so this is where, you know, we do a little five day mobility challenge that we get people to do, you know, very simple exercises. You start with rolling your foot and a few different movements it takes less than, you know, three or four minutes, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, to your point, if you're getting up for a run before you do the run, you do a bit of mobility work because mm. yeah, that sort of wakes you up and then, and then you go off and do your run. And at least then you're reminding your, your body, your, your brain that you want to be able to get these joints into these positions or at least move towards being able to get into them. And then that will help in a big way because yeah, we get, you know, we sit all day, the glutes get a bit lazy, we get real tight hip flexors and the T-spine gets locked up and now we're asking the body to, 
you know, then it's the weekend and you want to go play beach volleyball and your day or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, you know, an injury might crop up. So I wish I could go and play beach volleyball. I feel like anything that's not my much of a thing, <laughs> but I would love that. And tennis, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that tennis is more, it's more, I think, more UK. Mm-hmm. What is your kind of taking it? Because from just research generally of what I've read, you know, many of us in the UK are generally depleted in magnesium. And then you look at an endurance athlete and they are more likely to be 10% depleted in magnesium as well. So are there certain supplements that are helpful for people that are training a lot? Yeah, in terms of the, the supplements that actually impact in a significant way training adaptation or performance, there's a very small handful. Mm. Um, you know, when we talk about endurance, things like beta alanine, dietary nitrates, sodium bicarbonate, even things like creatine, which might seem a little bit weird because we always associate that with with building muscle when really it's mm. uh, plays a huge role in reducing exercise induced muscle damage and adaptation. So for your even your endurance athletes, ultra marathoners can be really beneficial. Um, so those would be some places where you're going to get some real tangible gains. Magnesium is definitely one of those ones where most of us need more, right? We drink more coffee. We have less magnesium. We drink more alcohol. We have less magnesium. We're, we're busy and running around. We burn through magnesium. Um, the funny part, when we supplement with it, we don't necessarily see like these direct performance gains, but we know from mm-hmm. a health standpoint, as a practitioner, I'm sure you see this all the time, people feel better right Mm. and so magnesium can be a really nice one and you can use you know different forms like the citrates in the daytime to give you support the energy side of things and you know i like to use a lot of the glycinates or bisglycinates with clients magnesium bisglycinate in the evening because now we're getting that glycine amino acid which helps to decompress the nervous system a little bit and you know support some sleep and that type of thing and so you know we can get it from our diets, you know, the fish, the greens, the avocados, but again, it's people are busy. We're not always able to kind of get there. And so I like to use it in certain blocks with people, right? Rather than mm-hmm. have them go off, you know, you always get that client who comes in, unfortunately, with their bag of supplements that eight, 10, 12, and it's like, you know, you're working through why they're taking them. They can't even remember. Um, yeah. So using it for a specific period of time, say, hey, we're going to use this magnesium for a month or two months. This is why. And then we're going to, you know, being really clear with our clients um, so that they know what the purpose is. And they know that, you know, if we start then during that month or two, we can we can boost those foods that have magnesium or maybe peel back the alcohol or whatever, whatever <laughs> needs to happen. And then and then we can get some gains there as well. It's so true because it's all these kind of other things within the diet. So, you know, obviously alcohol depletes the B vitamin absorption and, and, and so on and so forth. And as well as magnesium and, as you said, coffee and the tannins within tea and things like that. And they all affect kind of our mineral nutrient absorption. And mm-hmm. so it's actually looking at that. But I've done a really interesting podcast this season um, with a professor who works kind of with mineral depletion in the soil. And there has been a 70% decline in the last um, 100 years, with Mm -hmm. especially with magnesium. So sometimes even if we're eating a large amount of it, are we gaining what we actually think we are? It's um, it's like, you know, navigating that at the moment and seeing that, are we still getting enough from our food? Because for me, food is always first. And it's very worrying when you see a client coming in with, you know, 10 different supplements because as we as we are aware you know all of our minerals and nutrients work in synergy together so just isolating certain ones kind of throws the system out of whack a lot and and that's a big problem but if we are kind of obviously you know very depleted in magnesium it's something that we should you know look again eating those magnesium rich foods but if we're training on top of that you know going to see somebody who can maybe help see what your magnesium levels are i think it's really 
quite key because it does support, again, our stress responses and our fight and yeah. flight and cortisol and all of those things that can that can be very heightened. 100%. And it's cost effective too, right? It's nice when the certain supplements don't cost a lot because these days, certain mm. ones, the price just goes up and up and up and you think, geez, for 150 pounds a month, you know, you oh, can actually buy some pretty terrifying. good food, but, but things like magnesium are great or vitamin D or some of the probiotics, you know, yes. they're very cost effective. And so it's, you know, if it's five, 10, 15 pounds or US dollars, it's not the, you know, the end of the world, but if we're starting to spend 50, 60, 70, 80 pounds mm. or US dollars on something, yeah, we definitely want to be clear on like, how is this really going to help us? And and that's where the marketing sadly is, is kind of really infiltrating the nutrition side um, of where mm-hmm. we are today. You know, you can kind of buy a pill and solve all your problems. And <laughs> that's, the, like... that's the tempting thing for people, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. this thing is going to fix everything. But unfortunately... And you must see it with like the sports side, you know, like the weight loss, like do this and you'll like lose this weight within two weeks, which is just not attainable. Well, I mean, the funny part is people can lose it, but it comes back and it comes back even more so. So the, the biggest message I can give people is that, you know, you don't actually have to make these huge changes. You just can make small changes, you know, do them consistently over time and just be patient, right? One of the problems mm-hmm. we have is just with this social media and Instagramification is the fact that, yeah, it's all 30 day transformations. Like, mm-hmm. You know, just be patient. You'll, you'll get there. Um, you know, if you, if you can just follow the path, there's going to be challenges along the way. And that's when you can actually pause, troubleshoot. You know, bring someone on board to help you out, whether it's a trainer, practitioner, to kind of work around those things. Because it doesn't matter what strategy you pick, you're always going to hit a roadblock. And so you've got to, yeah. you know, we're not going to completely avoid them. And so it's it's best to tackle them with some support if you can. Completely. And so to kind of like round up recovery, something that I don't know much about at all, and I'm wondering if you do, I've, I've um, read a little bit around the subject, but it's biohacking and it's kind mm-hmm. of around the side of looking at cryotherapy or I spoke to the happy pair on the podcast last week and they always start, they live in Ireland, their morning with a freezing cold water swim in Dublin, yeah, nice. <laughs> infrared therapy. Like what's your thoughts on, on, on this side of things with recovery? Yeah, I mean, the term biohacking is sort of just like a fun term for experimenting on yourself. And, mm. you know, it's nice when it's sort of fun and light, but some people take it pretty seriously and, and spend a lot of money. And, mm. you know, we've got scientists doing the actual studies. And so, you know, I'd rather yeah. I'd rather lean on them to for the, for the info. And so, yeah, to your point, Completely. you know, we do have some good information around the benefits of cold water immersions. Um, so whether it's swimming somewhere really cold or, you know, taking a cold plunge in your bath. And that can help with things like mood. It can help reduce things like muscle soreness. Um, you know, typically we're looking for 11 to 15 degrees Celsius um, and for about 11 to 15 minutes. And actually Mike Tipton's one of the professors who does a lot of that work at University of Portsmouth. But one of the places that for my clients, you know, for people who are hardcore, the cold thing is a nice place to jump right in, but a lot of people don't want to jump into really cold water, right? They prefer to go for a hot tub. Um, and this is where it is really cool because if you get into warm a warm water immersion, which is a lot easier to sell a lot of clients on, right? Sit in this hot tub or take a hot bath, and we're looking at you know 40, um, 38 to forty Celsius. We see significant improvements in things like blood. You know, if your blood sugars are elevated, if you're pre-diabetic, if you have hypertension, we see improvements in blood sugars and blood pressure, um, and that's great, right? I mean, you just have yeah. to sit there and enjoy a nice warm. So those are some really nice things on the recovery front. Those would be more at the tip of the pyramid when we look at like compression garments or cryotherapy or cold water immersion. You know, those things can definitely help. But 
the big messages, if your sleep and your nutrition and your mental, emotional stress side or your training plan, if those things are still a bit of a mess, mm. then the cold or the hot's not going to solve everything. You know, you got to get back to those big rocks to really move the needle. Such good advice. I think, you know, actually sometimes we can look at all these kind of new trends coming out and go, well, I'll add that in and it's fine. But we're so ultra stressed and not sleeping that actually it's not going to have much of an effect on us at all. Well, I mean, cryotherapy is great, but if you had to go three times a week, I mean, it's, uh, you know. It's very expensive. I've done it once and I don't, I don't think it agreed with me. <laughs> I mean, it's really cold, I obviously. so much pain. Like, yeah, but I think it's because I have very poor circulation. So I don't think it it worked as well with me as it but I basically I know they find it incredible yeah but I think pretty, I'm one um, of these random people that just didn't work with very well the, the interesting thing with cryo is that you actually end up with the same core temperature as going for the cold plunge so even though it's like minus 100 plus whatever it is your mm. core temperature ends up being the same as if you're immersed in that cold water that we talked about so that's kind of a cool wow different phenomenon that uh, if you know if you want to recreate it at home then go get the ice yeah. bags <laughs> I saw a few people do that in lockdown, going to um, doing an outside bathtub and filling it with ice. Yeah, that's hardcore. That's really hardcore. So okay. kind of bringing like the, the, the conversation now more to the forefront of, of mental health, which is obviously mm-hmm. a, a lot of what, what the BWAR Collective represents. You know, we focus a lot on maybe weight loss and aesthetics, but in the last five years, there's been a huge shift to working out for your mental health and really mental strength and I always I always say that we go to the gym to look aesthetic wise but actually it's also very important for our mental well-being overall you know what's your kind of your take in people that you work with on their mental health with exercise yeah I mean just as a population we see anxiety and depression in 12 year olds now which is a generation ago was incredibly rare mm. we see mental health issues with obviously our exposure to, you know, technologies are great. Things like this are great, but too much can obviously cause a lot of concerns. And we see it in sport as well, obviously, whether it's um, Naomi Osaka, uh, NBA players like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan. And so, you know, I had a recent conversation with Dr. Drew Ramsey, who's a psychiatrist, Columbia University, had him on my podcast. And when it comes to things like anxiety, exercise is a great solution, right? People tend to always feel better when they exercise, when they're feeling things like experiencing uh, anxiety-like symptoms. When we look at mood, you know, exercise also helps quite a bit. I'd say if people are struggling with with weight gain, you know, that high blood sugars or high insulin levels are strongly associated to to depressive symptoms, and that there's actually this what they call a cyclical distress pattern, which you know, if you experience more depression, you're more likely to develop type two diabetes, and if you have type two type two diabetes you're actually more likely to start to develop depressive symptoms. And so, you know, on that side of things is where we talk about, you know, the weight loss, you know, reversing type two diabetes is, or putting it into remission is 90% of its weight loss. Right. And so for that group, that's a key characteristic for people who are, you know, uh, quote unquote, healthy body composition, or maybe even underweight, then this is where you can get into the under fueling or the overtraining. Mm-hmm. We talked about that because of one of the big symptoms in athletes, when they're overtraining is the mood goes down. And when we do these little questionnaires with them to assess where they're at, that's one of the big red flags. When we see the mood start to flatten out, you know, they're not kind of joking around with their teammates or staff or their natural personality, then that's when we know, okay, we're pushing the nervous system a little too much. And so for your listeners who are more athletic or more fit, uh, especially in females, because we can fall into this trap around reducing carbohydrate, you know, as the only solution for weight loss. And, 
male and female physiology is a little bit different in the sense that men can get away with reductions in carbohydrate for a longer period of time without eliciting a lot of the same kind of stress responses or impact on the nervous system than, than a female athlete might do. And so, you know, we've, we've got to circle back. Are we fueling right? Are we getting enough sleep? You know, what are the strategies on that mental emotional side that we can help people work through? Because, um, yeah, it's, it's, especially for our younger athletes, just the realities of being online all the time is, is, and then, and the dopamine hits and how it impacts us is something that, you know, I've got, I've got three little kids at home. It's something I hope we figure out in the next <laughs> 10 years or so, but, um, it's a challenge. Yeah, it's so true. I think, you know, it, even actually just a form of exercise of going out for a walk and getting away from your phone improves mm-hmm. your mental health. Um, and it's those small things that sometimes we think about exercise and we think it has to be intensity and it has to be endurance or it has to be lifting weights, but actually movement is a form of exercise and just getting out in nature away from your phone can be one of the, for, well, maybe speaking personally, but can be one of the best things for your mental health. Um, and just getting back to kind of being more present and exercise can bring that because when I'm exercising, I actually don't take my phone with me anymore for that reason. Yeah. Such a great tip. And to your point, getting out in nature is, is amazing. Um, there's some cool research around awe. So experiencing these moments of awe where we have a, you know, beautiful countryside or water or mountains, or actually, even if you look on your phone, which is a little counterintuitive, (laughs) but, um, and, and that's actually associated with improving, you know, the two different aspects of things like happiness. And so, yeah, to your point, if we can combine even movement with being outdoors in nature, we're getting, you know, we're starting to amplify and stack some of these benefits. And it's amazing how good that feels. If you can take a digital detox for, you know, a week or two or ideally a month, but you know, for a lot of people mm. that's, that's not feasible, but that, that <laughs> does have some real tangible benefits from what uh, experts are telling me and what, and what we see in the research. It does. And it just gives you more time. <laughs> you yeah, exactly. Like, wow, I've got phone. so much time. I'm reading books now. I got all this time to play instruments and pick up hobbies. That's true. And you are now living by the sea. So you are practicing what you preach by being, you know, in, in trying, more of trying. a nature environment. Um, so lastly, one question I always like to ask all my guests, and I'm really interested to know what your answer to this will be. For you, Mark, what does live well, being well mean to you? Oh, good question. You know, I think it's about people living their purpose, right? Living the thing that they want to do and and I think as practitioners, we can just help them to feel their best in order to do it, right? I don't think everybody has to, you know, it's going to be different for everybody in terms of how much emphasis they put on nutrition or exercise or whatever it might be. But I think everybody across the board wants to just have the energy and feel that vitality. So we're not just surviving the days, you know, we're able to thrive. And if we can help people with that, then they're much better positioned to be able to then, yeah, go after the thing that really makes them happy in life. Brilliant. That's such a great answer. And so for anyone who wants to follow you further, I mean, you know, you've just got a book that's out. Um, you've got a fantastic podcast. You've got a brilliant Instagram. Can you share these details? <laughs> and I'll obviously put them in the show notes for anyone who's trying to scribble and write them down. But if you could share that with our listeners. For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, the website's drbubs.com. Um, if you're interested more on in the athletic side, my first book peak was sort of a deeper dive into athletic performance. And um, we got some nice feedback around the performance circles. And so you can pick that up wherever books are sold. And then the, the latest book is a, it's called peak 40. And that's a way for us to sort of simplify things for the busy person, for the, for the coach, for, you know, when life's busy, what, what can we rely on these kind of simple heuristics? And so, yeah, they can find that information on the website and then, you know, performance nutrition podcast is again, the deeper dive um, podcast on the, on the nutrition front. 
Fantastic. And what's your Instagram as well? Oh, yeah. I've got a strange last name. So doctor, at Dr. Bubs on Twitter, Instagram, all those social, and you could find me there pretty easily. Amazing. I'll make sure to link that all to the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. That was such an insightful chat. And I could carry on asking 10 million questions, but sadly, I have to stop because we've awesome, gone over. Awesome. I appreciate the time and we'll have to have you uh, return the favor on our podcast sometime soon. I would absolutely love that. I would love that. We'll have a really lovely day. Awesome. You too. Take care. Thank you so much to Mark for being on this podcast this week. It was fascinating to hear everything regarding sports nutrition. I could have definitely spoke to him for much longer. If you do want to know more about Mark, please do go and look at the show notes. And until next week and next week's episode, I hope that you will live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.